Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. One of the biblical themes that we read about God's people is that we are sojourners. This means that we are resident aliens. We reside somewhere that we do not ultimately belong. In other words, where we live now is not our true home. As sojourners in this world, there are many ways that we can experience the otherness and the difficulty of not belonging to it. The Christian worldview helps us to understand how we are different from our surrounding culture and teaches us the truth. I'm excited to have a guest on today's podcast who's an excellent Christian worldview guide in our confusing culture. His name is Shane Morris, and we got to discuss a wide range of topics. Shane and I began our discussion by talking about being fathers of young families and how a Christian value of the family will sometimes put you at odds with the surrounding values of our culture. We then discussed how technology influences us and the ways that the church should respond. Finally, we discussed how the driving presuppositions of our culture are opposed to what the Bible teaches us about ourselves and life. Shane is a senior writer at the Colson Center, where he has been the resident Calvinist and millennial homeschool grad since 2010 as an intern under Chuck Colson. He writes breakpoint commentaries and columns. Shane has also written for The Federalist, The Christian Post, and Summit Ministries, and he blogs regularly for Pathios Evangelical as Troubler of Israel. Shane is fascinated by the natural world, which he explores whenever possible in scuba gear. Shane graduated from Thomas Edison State College with a degree in humanities. He lives with his wife, Gabriella, and their four children in Tampa, Florida. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all of the latest contents sent directly into your inbox. Just visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you are subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage. If you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple and also write a review on Apple Podcasts. When you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I had with Shane Morris. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Aaron, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you on. Glad that you uh, took a break from your uh, from the recent family adventures you've, you guys have been having. Uh, as we were discussing, y'all just welcomed your second daughter, fourth child into your family and so you're uh currently on leave to help out with the wife and new baby girl so man i'm just so happy for y'all and uh congratulations to you on um on that blessing well thanks man the main thing that i do on leave here is get the other three kids out of my wife's hair so she can do the good motherly business of, of taking care of the little one and so we we get in the car and we go places and give her a few hours of quiet. Um, we'll watch shows. We'll, um, you know, do whatever it is that dads come up with to, to do with their younger kids. And it's been fun so far. We, we like to do outdoor adventures um, and things like that. But my parents actually have them right now. So I get a free moment to do a podcast, which to me is a treat. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And yeah, that's, that's what dads do. I, I, I don't have four. I have two. But whenever we had our second, I remember that role of, you know, basically uh, trying to give mom a break from the older one so she can take care yeah. of the, the new baby. You know, I think whenever you have a new baby, there's no there's no arguing against it. The mom does end up taking the majority of the workload. Dad can help out as much as he wants to and tries to, but baby wants who baby wants and baby wants mom. <laughs> you know, you're on your fourth now. You know that. But somehow I find it's still... I'm not going to say as, but almost as exhausting on the dad. Do you think that's true? Well, yeah, the, um, the, the thing is with, you know, fathers is we, 
we don't have the obvious kind of attributes that um, make us suited immediately for caring for newborn little ones. I mean, mothers literally feed the most, you know, mothers are able to feed the baby from their body. And, and that's what the baby wants. You know, they, he or she wants that comfort, wants that presence. Um, but I think there's a role that fathers have, and I will, I will not dare to say that it's uh, as hard as the, as the mother's role. But um, in these early days, I think there's a role of comfort and security that, that we give to uh, our wives and then to the, the other kids too. So there's this sense of we're taking on the, um, you know, not the additional burden, but the additional sense of responsibility and pr um, protection that needs to be given there. And so your wife yeah. looks to you and says, uh, are we, can I do the thing I need to do? Am I cared for, provided for, protected? Are you confident? Are you uh, putting good vibes out into the family? And it's, you know, it's an intangible thing. So it's hard to put into words. It's ineffable in a way, right? But mm -hmm. it's, there is a sense where um, you are affirming her and her diving into that maternal role. And you are doing that in a paternal way that is all encompassing of the family's energy. And so you look at your kids, your older kids, and you say, at least I do. And, and I say, this is beautiful. This is a good thing. What we have here in this new baby girl, we're welcoming. And I want you, all you little kids to join in, help us to welcome Aubrey in a way that shows mom and, and baby that, um, this is beautiful and that we fully affirm and appreciate the hard work she's doing because it's so, you know, it'd be so easy to sort of fall into this mindset that the modern world tells us to fall into, which is that, um, you know, men and women basically are creatures that are meant to go out and, uh, work at an office or, or work at a nine to five job or something like that. And that's what gives it, gives you meaning. And yeah. that, uh, that when you take a break to have kids, well, it's taking, taking a break from the real <laughs> duty of life. Right. Yeah. But I think the paternal role comes down to reinforcing the maternal role. And in this instance in life and, and saying how beautiful it is, affirming, supporting, enabling, and celebrating. That's what I'm trying to do. It sounds better when I say it. I don't think my wife would, would say I'm doing a super job with it, <laughs> but I'm yeah. trying. Lord, help me. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's a lot easier said. Well, I, I guess it's cliche to say that. It's a lot easier said than done, but you, know, it, you yeah. can put it eloquently, but it's not always lived out eloquently. If that's uh, if, if that makes sense, you know, it's it makes it, in living it out. It's a lot more uh, hectic, stressful, tiring. The kids don't always go along with that. Like you said, that beautiful vision that you're trying to lay out because they just they want what they want. And, you know, we're trying to parent them into learning obedience and learning selflessness and helping sharing and so on. Exactly. But, uh, but yeah, tell us your story. Uh, you you're in Florida. Have you spent your whole life in Florida? I've spent most of my life in Florida. Uh, Gabby and I lived for four years in Virginia when I first started working for the Colson Center. It was uh, Breakpoint, which was a division of Prison Fellowship at that time. And uh, we moved up there shortly after Chuck Colson passed away, um, which felt like a, a really big move because we didn't know what the exact you know future of the organization was going to be. But John Stone Street came in, became president. We were working closely with Eric Metaxas for a while, who was our... Um, one of the co-hosts of Breakpoint, he was, you know, one of the two voices who hosted the program, and uh, and then it just sort of grew and flowered from there, and things changed, and, and my role became more and more editorial until finally I'm, you know, writing full time and then um, hosting, co-hosting podcasts first, so the Breakpoint podcast, the weekend review show, and then finally my own podcast uh, about almost two years ago now with Upstream. And uh, so that's the little juncture where we lived in Virginia, but we've since come back to Florida uh, and have been here for a few years now. This is our home state. This is where both Gabby and I were born and raised and where our families are as well, both local. And so we just needed the support. We um, ardently desired the support. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ardently desired to get away from snow, to be honest with you. And even though Virginia is still the South, uh, it felt like the frozen tundra to me. And I, I really cherish yeah. my warm summers, my swimming, my uh, beaches and springs and things like that. Yeah. And uh, I don't have the blood necessary to tolerate, you know, snow days and, and, and so forth. Yeah, that makes sense. From what I've seen on social media, you're somewhat of an outdoorsman. I don't know if you would you call yourself that you could call it that that sounds pretty. Um, that sounds a little sexy, to be honest. 
brother. Um, <laughs> outdoorsman. Yeah, it's it, it would be a great title. I love to be outside. Um, I like to discover a whole network of outside places where, where me and my kids and my friends can get to, you know, my kind of adventure buddies can get to whenever I feel like it um, escapes. I love being out where there's no people um, camping, swimming, scuba diving, um, especially the water, you know, I'm really drawn to the water. And so the feeling of being offshore in a, in a completely blue expanse with no land in sight, you know, jumping into the water, you can't where you can't see the bottom, um, being out in the, in the swamp and seeing alligators and hearing them bellow and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, or even the mountains, you know, during trips to the, when we lived in Virginia, I would always drag, um, my wife and kids out to the, you know, national parks and national forests close by and, uh, try to really enjoy those as much as you can with little children in tow. And yeah. that's just what gives life to me. So yeah, outdoorsman is a wonderful way to put it. I like that. I'll take, I'll keep that. Yeah. Yeah. I've just, I've seen your posts of, uh, the scuba diving, especially, and, uh, yeah. you know, you, you go and you find, I don't know, is, is it fossils you're finding or oh, yeah. yeah, uh, all kinds of really cool stuff. And so, uh, that's really intrigued me, and uh, I think that's unique. I like that. But tell us, go, go, circling back to Colson, how did you get started with the Colson Center? Did you get started there while Choke is still alive, or uh, did yes. you get started after he passed away? Yeah. So I served as an intern in the summer of 2010, and um, I was on the web team actually, but I gravitated toward the editorial side, and the web side was just what was open. So, and I and I knew enough to be able to help out there to some reasonable degree. Uh, but I quickly gravitated toward the editorial direction and began um, writing things, co-writing at first. Uh, and then I I came up with a section on the, the website where, uh, or I found one rather, that had been sitting dormant. It was called Ask Breakpoint. And uh, Chuck had set this up. And as Chuck was wont to do, he, he sort of forgot about it after he answered a couple questions because, well, he was Chuck and he was an ideas man, you know, ultra type A. And uh, so there was this inbox full of really great questions from listeners that they wanted Chuck to answer in article form. And so I drafted a couple of responses and sent them to the editor and he passed them to Chuck and, and Chuck loved them. So he published one on the separation of church and state and whether that means that Christians, you know, can't be, uh, can't bring their faith into politics. And I had just, I had interned at some political think tanks while I was studying uh, for my undergraduate and that was a natural uh, subject for me to write about at the time. And I would still think my response was okay. Uh, there's some things I'd change, but Ch Chuck liked it. And that was the beginning of the whole, um, work in the editorial team. At some point I transitioned over from, um, you know, the, the internship into part-time work so I could finish school and, uh, get married. I had to do that as well. It was kind of on the agenda. <laughs> I had already met Gabby by the time I started the um, internship in, in DC. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, it evolved from there. And I've really, you know, it, it's been a not, it's been a non-traditional journey for me in some ways, just on a, a personal note, because I have chosen to do, um, my wife and I have chosen to do the family track f intensely in parallel with the whole career track. And so I think life would look, would have looked a lot different if it wasn't, you know, the last 10 years wasn't the process of growing a family and moving around a bunch to accommodate the family and everything. But like yeah. we said at the beginning, I mean, I'm possessed of this conviction that that's vitally important and it's the source of the, of the dominant part of the meaning in my life. Yeah. And so, um, and the Colson center agrees and that's why they've been such a great, um, group to be with because they value that. And John values that and Chuck did as well. Um, so I feel, I feel a great appreciation for that, but that's, that's the basic story um, yeah. in rough terms. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, that, that really resonates with me too. That's something that my wife and I have really made a, uh, one of the primary guiding values in our life is our family. And with that comes place, which is, I think is what you were referring to mm -hmm. when you were talking about going back to Florida so that you could be near that support system. So you yeah. be near the, the family, the friends that make a flourishing family life possible. And, and yeah, we've done the same thing by uh, intentionally choosing to be here. We're, we're in the Acadia, it's called Acadiana. 
the city we're in is Lafayette, but the region is called the Acadiana area of Louisiana hmm. because we have a, a, such a deep network here of family um, and then uh, Christian community and friends. And so, yeah, that really resonates with me too. And I, I completely understand what you mean. And I think there's such uh, there's such a deep reward in that that's not highlighted in our culture today, particularly by our um, generation that values the uh, ever newness, right? Of especially in terms of place, you're seen, you're looked down upon. I think by millennials, if you're not constantly traveling to new places, yes, and and, and changing your place and your community and your people, and you're seen as somewhat taking a, a lesser road if you instead choose to commit to one context and to commit to those family networks and friend networks and and so on. But I think really that, um, I think there's such a rich life to be had in this one that you and I have talked about. Yeah. I'm of, you know, two minds on that question. One part of me is just an enthusiastic agreement with you because you're right. There is that millennial sense. And that I think Gen Z has inherited that as well, to some extent sense that you have to have an impressive resume of place in your, um, in your history. And it's not placed the way that Wendell Berry would mean it. You know, it's placed mm. the way that, uh, magazines, travel magazines mean it. So you, so you have to have, you know, studied abroad in, in Barcelona at some point you have to have, um, lived your life on in relevant cities on the coast and have your resume, you know, filled with places like New York and San Francisco and Washington DC. And I mean, really, if those three, if those three cities don't, at least if one of those three cities doesn't appear somewhere, then you're really, you're, you're of doubtful provenance at that point, you know, you are, you're questionable. Um, so that's one side of it. And I think that's, uh, that is, a, you know, the, I critique that along with you. I think that's just an awful attitude to have. The other side of me, though, is conscious of the fact that sub suburbification, if I can coin a phrase, mm. and the um, the sprawl that has dominated, especially our beloved South, right? The, the South, South and Southeastern United States just become, and, and I mean, this is everywhere. It's, it's happening in Colorado because I travel there quarterly and I guess it's happening out West too, but there's this sprawl where cities bleed into suburbs, bleed into strip malls, bleed into, um, what one writer called strodes. So like streets and roads combined, there's like 18 lanes and everything is based on the automobile. And so when you say people would ask me, where are you from Shane? And I would say, well, I'm from uh, Lithia, Florida, and they're like, "Oh, where the where the heck is Lithia, Florida? You know, what's that?" Um, well, it's a suburb of Brandon, Florida. It's got a rural outlying of Brandon, Florida. Well, where's Brandon? Well, it's a suburb of Tampa. Do you know what Tampa is? Yes, I know where Tampa. Okay, I'm from Tampa, right? And that's what you. There's this temptation to immediately, and you you learn to do this when you're like in D.C. or something. You learn to to fib about where you're from. Because mm. Tampa is sounds a little more impressive, and immediately it brings in a set of associations about who you are um, that that people can can work with, and you just start to go roll with it. It's not exactly a lie, but it does. I think it acknowledges the fact that there is no place anymore that's that's distinctive, like to be from a a small city. Like if you're from Savannah, for instance, okay. Well, that has a set of associations because it has a history and there's a story there. And if anyone who knows anything about it, they expect certain things of you or you know about or like certain things. You have a certain character. But if you say you're from like a suburb of Atlanta, there's nothing that what is what is your culture? What is your place? It doesn't mm. it's meaningless. It's just like endless suburbs and, and strodes. And so I think there's in Florida, we suffer from very, something very similar. So the millennial impulse to go to a city and find a place. I, I recognize that as well. Um, cause they don't want to be rural. They can't cl they claim to that, which is a historic thing, but they also can't be urban unless they actually go and live there. Um, so those are the two sides of, I mean, what do you yeah. think? I'll shut up. Yeah. Well, and then, w w so it, there's this romantic allure to go to the New York's and the DC's, the Atlanta's, whatever else. Uh, but then they get there and find how incredibly expensive it is Yeah, <laughs> and right. harsh. And so they end up in one of the suburbs. Yeah, and I'm in a suburb. As we speak, I am in a yeah. horrible, god-awful suburb. I mean, it's really bad if you really? look at it. It's, yeah. just like a, it's just like this sprawl into former ranch land 
in South mm. Lakeland, if you know yeah. where Lakeland, Florida is. Um, so, but yeah, it's the incentives are all set up to, to push you in that direction. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to like condemn anyone because I am the man, but, um, there's no way I could afford to live in one of the big cities with, you know, a family with four kids now. Yeah. Yeah. I think what, what's more important than, than the name of where you live is the, is the community that you're mm-hmm. invested into. You know, uh, and, and that's what I mean whenever I talk about really committing to a place. But what we are so often concerned more with is, are we in a place that matters or not? You know, because like wherever you're talking about people, you, you go and you travel somewhere else and you learn, you don't say, oh, well, I'm from this little podunk town, in Louisiana. I'm from Baton Rouge or whatever right. else, you know, names. I think what you're trying to do is you know, maybe on the one hand, sometimes it's just giving people a region that's more familiar, right? Cause they've never heard of, of, you know, Bunky or whatever else. Sure. Uh, but, but they've heard of this place, but sometimes it, it is, I think maybe an insecurity and you're one to say that you're from somewhere that matters. So you mm-hmm. matter. Um, so there's assumption that the places that don't matter fill with people that don't matter. And, um, and I think that instead when we start to value, the people of a place more than the prestige of a place, then we can find a really rich life open to us by being involved in that community through local churches, families, and other, you know, community organizations. Yeah. The church in many ways is like this, uh, countercultural institution that pushes against that and continues to insist by its very constitution and its, um, historic structure on there being a place where, where people actually come together as bodies, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as a body and, and worship the Lord and partake of his body. You know, there, there's a lot of embodiment going on here in this whole, this whole Christianity thing. And, uh, that just feels so different and countercultural to people because we're not only are we hyper mobile. So the automobile is our, we thank the automobile for that. But we're we're now non physical. We're now digital, which means that we're our mobility has transcended the physical into virtual um, encounters, and we're having here we are having a virtual encounter right now. Mm. So it's sort of a you know there's a meta critique here that just it, it it's easy for it to devolve into a couple of hipsters sitting a, a, around craft beers going oh aren't we so ironic because we're doing the thing <laughs> and we're also critiquing the thing right yeah. but i but you have to acknowledge how weird it is and i i guess i first realized that just reading like old books and writers who both fiction and nonfiction who sort of took for granted a world where if you wanted to talk to someone at distance, you had to write them a letter, or if you wanted to see someone, you actually had to get together with them. Mm-hmm. And then where people didn't move around very much and it did develop something, um, very different. And the church fit naturally into that, which is why the church in my limited historical understanding played a central role spatially. Like it's in the middle of the town. It's in the middle of the city. Uh, yeah. it's a center point that yeah. everyone, where everyone comes together. Um, that's not the case anymore. Like the church I go to, I'm not trying to knock my church, but they, they're in an, they're in an old Suzuki dealership, uh, on a major kind of highway through suburbia. Mm -hmm. And it does not look like a historic church by any stretch of the imagination, but they're, you know, they're amazing people. Um, and they're doing something amazing. And I, I kind of acknowledge that as often as I can to the, to the pastors there. But yeah, there's something at the heart of Christianity and in the church that is pushing against that. And I think a lot of the tension that pastors feel and parishioners feel even like, especially after uh, COVID tested the boundaries of that virtual world that we're, we're starting to inhabit. Um, it's made it, it's made it harder for them to make the case. So I mean, how have you seen, have you seen them making the case in, in your instance? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, um, yeah, I, I can't speak for anyone else. I'll just, you know, for our church during the pandemic, we had, we had a shutdown in here in Louisiana, like in a lot of places. And so during that time we followed the stay at home orders until they were lifted and we did virtual services and I made a point. So in every single one of our virtual services to say that this is a 
uh, a temporary measure until we can meet back together. Yeah. And, and emphasize that temporariness so that whenever, so that whenever the stay at home order was lifted, we started meeting back together, you know, according to different people's, uh, consciences or whatever else, it took some people longer than others to come back and go back to normal, but it was expected that we would go back to normal. And for 99% of our congregation, that's what happened. Um, and at first I was kind of against it, but my staff convinced me to continue live streaming our, uh, worship services, even once we met back in person. Um, I, I was against it at first because I think, you know, we're, we're in attention, like you were talking about with these new technologies and, uh, some of the values that come along with these new technologies. And I, I maybe was overreacting some to, um, against the value of overly embracing, overly embracing it to where I was maybe pushing too hard against it and saying, no, I don't want to continue live streaming because it might keep enforcing in some people's minds that, uh, attending church virtually is acceptable. We, we talked about it and they, they sold me on the value of, well, but it could also be an open door and mm-hmm. an entry point for people. And we actually have seen a lot of fruit through that. So, yeah. so that's where we've come is that we, uh, we maintain a live stream, but, uh, one thing that we do is we do not treat it like a campus, you know, so we don't address our live stream audience our virtual attenders, anything like that. Instead, it's literally there as just like, here's a window into our worship service. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's, I, I think it's struck a pretty good balance for us. I saw something interesting on Facebook this morning that I'd like to hear your thoughts on. There's a church. It's some, it's in Florida. I don't remember where you might've seen this article. I think Ed Stetzer posted it. Uh, that is now hologramming their pastor to nine locations. So we're not, they're not even on a screen anymore. I didn't, I didn't see exactly how it works. Um, but I mean, it's like something straight out of star Trek. They're hologramming their lead pastor to nine locations for him to be able to preach to all the locations simultaneously. What do you think about that? Hologram, like, uh, like a science fiction kind of setup. Yeah. I mean, it it looks like something for, I just got back from Disney world and it looks like something out of Disney world. You know, with, with the, wow. the image, not a screen, but an image of a person standing there. It's crazy. That is, that is extremely dystopian. Um, yeah, I'd love to, it, I'd love to have been in the meeting where that was cooked up and the, where, where the board voted. Yeah, this is a good idea. Let's, uh, let, let's do this. We should ought to do this. Um, yeah, I mean, every, everything we, we do technologically and I, I listened to a really great, I was trying to find the guest just now. Um, on the Art of Manliness podcast, which has a lot of good stuff. And there yeah. was a guest who was talking about uh, this idea of how technology changes us and how it makes us think about relationships and uh, interpersonal dynamics differently. Hmm. And how, um, in particular, the internet and uh, our screens are crafted in such a way that they tr- that they assume a sharp divide between our bodies and our minds. And so they only engage our minds. And he was talking about what a technology would look like if you could actually, if you could actually go back and reinvent the, the, uh, digital revolution in a way that didn't leave the body idling in a chair, like Hmm. ours are doing right now, (laughs) you know, and it's, it is a, it is sort of a mind stretching, um, proposition. Cause you're like, well, what would that look like VR or something? And, um, and no, that wouldn't replace uh, the embodied experience. But at the same time, I, I guess I view an attempt like a hologram. So I guess there's a three dimensional aspect to it as somewhat of a, uh, an effort at replacing that or, or, or returning what was lost, making it more of a, more like a VR experience than just staring at a screen. And in that sense, it's like, it's an acknowledgement that something real is missing there. I, this is the difficult conversation Aaron, because we're not, uh, we're not talking about right and wrong here. We're not talking about thus saith the Lord and thou shalt and thou shalt not. We're talking about issues of wisdom and, uh, issues of just like making a prudent decision about the technology you're going to utilize and how you're going to utilize it and what effect it's going to have on the minds of your people. 
I, I didn't know if I fully appreciated this until I read Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he actually pins a whole lot of the, you can say blame, he would say more just the the underpinning, the causal underpinning of the sexual revolution and ultimately things like transgenderism and gay marriage and, and all that on our technology. He says that the, the industrialization, the conquest of nature persuaded us that we are in control of the world and our, our own bodies in ways that man previously didn't believe because mm. our lack of control was constantly enforced. And he, he cites things like the seasons, agriculture, the concerns of uh, frost and, and insect plagues and things like that as reminders of how powerless we were, that nature really exercised a dominant role in our existence, that the, the existence was given. And I don't mean to go too far afield here, but that is how he applies, um, or that's rather one of the things he he sets up as an underpinning for the revolution in selfhood that opens up into a revolution in sex, because we came to believe that nature was conquered and that our lives were no longer given. And that even our physicality as human beings is, is just sort of negotiable in a lot of ways. And you, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how that is one of the ideas that's necessary for you to, to buy as a culture in order to think, well, a man can become a woman. A woman can become a man. Yeah. Um, these things are not, they're negotiable. They're not given uh, by God or by nature or, or what have you. So I don't know how I feel about that, that particular church or what I think about it. It strikes me as unwise on the surface, but I, I also know that I'm kind of a Luddite as well. And mm -hmm. I look at, I just, I have a, a visceral or um, instinctive reaction to technology, partly because of my love for the natural world, but partly because of all the stuff that I've, you know, read that paints a beautiful idyllic picture of, of the world as it was before a lot of these technologies came along. Yeah. And I think a lot of us miss that. Even if we never experienced it, we look back and we say, it would be nice to have that. Maybe that's a hipster thing to think, but I think there's probably a, a kernel of, of wisdom in that as well. Yeah. No, I, I certainly agree with you. And, and I think, and I, I tend to be uh, a very similar way, uh, where I, I, I lean towards being a letter as well. Um, and yeah, no, I definitely think there's some, there's something that is godly wisdom in that, um, because God didn't create us as floating minds mm -hmm. or, or even floating 2d images. He created us as physical, uh, flesh and blood bodies. And he chose to, uh, ultimately reveal himself. You know, he revealed himself, uh, through the word, but then in his ultimate revelation and accomplishment of our salvation, revealed himself in a body in Jesus, in the man, Jesus Christ. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I still haven't come to a fully formed opinion, especially of this particular example. And I, and I thought about it for a while this morning and thought would Paul, if he had that kind of technology available to him, would he have utilized it to address the church in Rome, the church at Colossae and others? You know, I don't know. Uh, but I, I think it's without falling into one extreme or the other, I don't think there's anything wrong with pumping the brakes and asking questions <clears throat> like these, this, this guest on the art of manliness, and I wish I could find his, I'm scrolling through and I forget his name, but he was a, he was a very good, um, guest here. And he, I might know who you're talking about. Yeah. So he talked about the, he talked about a distinction between, um, between devices and instruments. This was a very good distinction. I, I liked a lot. He said that, uh, we should, we should work hard to design technology that falls into the category of instruments instead of devices. So instruments hmm. actually take our human capacities and enhance, grow, challenge, and uh, cultivate them. So, uh, uh, you know, an instrument could be anything from a scientific instrument, like a, a microscope or a telescope or a Bunsen burner or something like that, to a, a musical instrument, like a, a guitar or piano or violin. And yeah. you, you know, those things have immense power in the hands of the right people, but they don't just do things for you. You can't just pick up a violin and be like, play. It's not like pr hitting a, hitting the play button on your, on your phone 
uh, and have, you know, hearing a concerto or something, which is something that we take for granted the fact that we can do that. But just a very short time ago, if you wanted music, somebody actually had to be there and play the music yeah. <laughs> that yeah. couldn't, that couldn't happen, but you know, before, uh, the phonograph and everything. So, um, that's an instrument. A device is something that just does, it, it sets up the parameters. It works for you. It accomplishes the task for you and it actually leaves you reduced. So instead of coming out of uh, the use of that technology, feeling that your humanity has been enhanced and grown and cultivated so that you're now better, bigger, and more um, God-honoring than you were before. And that's kind of what I'm drawing out of it. He didn't say God-honoring, but yeah, you are now reduced. You're less, you're, you're littler. The space in which you have to operate with your um, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he did use quick Christian terms in that. He, he cited Jesus. Hmm is now less than it was before with the violin or the microscope or something, your space for action has increased and you can now physically and mentally and spiritually, uh, impact the world in ways you couldn't before. So I like that distinction. Um, and good. he said that he said the phone is not automatically a device. You can use it as an instrument, but he said, you got to use it wisely. You can't just, um, you can't let it set the parameters. And I guess for me, that would be one of the, the key watershed questions on, on the church's use of technology or family's use of technology. Is this, is this thing setting the parameters for how I live my life? And is it imposing the duties and the structure of my actions and all that? Or is it conforming to pre-existing standards and empowering me to achieve more? I think our phones, if we're honest with ourselves, have set up and structured our lives. Yeah. And, and they've set the benchmarks we haven't. And that's not, that's not good. That's technology controlling us instead of us controlling technology. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Was the, was the guest, uh, Nicholas Carr? Let me see. I'm going to scroll through here and I will, I will find it by the end of the podcast. So I'll make sure to, I'll make sure to drop the name because it was very good. It was like a, a better than normal episode. Yeah. Well, cause I've read his book, the shallows and, um, it sounds might be it. This sounds like what he says in that book. That might be it. Um, but he has another one as well that I have on the floor somewhere near me. Uh, they haven't read yet that it might be mm. about that one. But because that's what he's written about is how technology has shaped culture and then shapes us. But hmm. um, yeah, let's uh, let's do some. Let's go back to cultural analysis. Well, I guess this is a part of cultural analysis. Sure, but at a, a, a higher level, I guess, and talk about what are you know, you, you do a lot of cultural analysis and reporting on current events and so on with uh, Colson Center. What do you think are some of the primary differences with the guiding presuppositions of our culture today and the presuppositions of the Christian worldview? Guiding presuppositions of our culture today and presuppositions of the Christian worldview. Well, I think we, we did talk about one a moment ago there, and I think it's probably one that's come under special attack in our time, which is the givenness of creation. So, um, we have, and this is, this brings in a lot of CS Lewis's insights from abolition of man, but we have become deeply enamored as a society of this idea that we get to make ourselves and remake ourselves to be whoever and however and whatever we want. And that the meaning of life is to express that internal uh, selfhood. And this goes back to, you know, Carl Truman shamelessly cribbing off of his stuff. But I watched this, you know, those masterclass uh, yeah. lessons that they put. Yeah. And there's, you know, I'm sure there's some good ones, but a lot of them are really I mean, you just laugh to see who they've recruited to be the, uh, the instructor in the master <laughs> yeah. class. So, you know, yeah. like they got a physics one taught by Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm like, Oh, yeah. I bet that'll be great. I'm no physics by Neil deGrasse Tyson just means like bargain bin philosophy, atheist philosophy taught by it's not, there's not going to be yeah. physics. It's going to be terrible. Um, but there yeah, was the one, one with the one that Bill Clinton is teaching is just what's what's that one called uh political ethics <laughs> i mean it's <laughs> marital integrity <laughs> it, oh here it is it's inclusive leadership <laughs> yeah, but there's a, a bunch of great comments into that one. <laughs> oh man yeah i remember whenever i saw that i was like oh really <clears throat> yes yeah. um so 
this one was by some nameless uh, sex therapist. I don't know. I forget her name. Mm. But uh, but I watched the little the ad for it. I think it was on Spotify. The ad came up for me because I'm cheap and I don't pay for the paid version of Spotify. Um, but she was talking about her sex education masterclass and why you should take it. And it was like it was like Carl Truman had written the script of this thing as a parody of the expressive individualism he talks about in the book. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. It was like, she goes, the, the most important thing in life is expressing your inner uh, self to the world around you. And it was, it was just like giving uh, who you really are deep down inside and anything goes as long as you're being who you really are and being true to yourself. And it was like, what? Wow. Okay. So your, uh, we, we've established that your gender, your sex, that your biological equipment doesn't matter. Um, what else does that, what else is a negotiable in the face of your all powerful, all expressive internal self, um, mm. the needs and wants and rights of children, perhaps, uh, your commitments that you've made to other people, the expectations of your family and your community, um, the the investment your parents have made in you and the right that they have to expect something in return. I mean, frankly, the right that they do have mm. to expect you to um, carry on their legacy and represent their, their name well and, and be an honorable person. None of that matters because, well, your expressive internal self is the is the most important thing. That's yeah. that one of the dominant, if not the dominant assumptions right now. Yeah. Everything sort of revolves around that. To be a Christian... I think right now, and I talked about this before in various ways, but to be a Christian right now, I think means a lot more than just preaching the gospel of redemption in supernatural terms. So to say, you know, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, it all does center on that. But I think the road by which we get there has to be quite different from the road by which previous generations got there. So the thing under attack right now is not really miracles. That's the funny part. We, my whole childhood, Christian apologists spent, you know, countless hours and pages and, and, and limitless amounts of ink defending the miraculous super, supernatural claims of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that was great for the new atheist moment, but that moment's over. Now we're in the, a, a very much different moment that is full of claims about justice and selfhood and doesn't really bat an eye at supernatural claims. It's nature that's under attack right now, not supernature. <laughs> it's mm. not spirituality and, and the numinous that's attack under attack right now. It is this stuff. It's the flesh, not the flesh in Paul in the, the negative sense, but in the positive sense, yeah. the, the sense in which Jesus came in the flesh. And so we are, I mean, the word Gnostic gets thrown around a lot. But I think we kind of are in a neo-Gnostic moment. Nature itself is seen as something that must be transcended. And so a Christian now, I think, has to be someone who is very loud in reasserting humanity and nature and creation. And then using that as, as a way to draw people back into, okay, there's, there's a God who's designed us to be a certain way. And we don't get to set those parameters for how he designed us to be. Yeah. And we fail at that. And there you can roll that into the gospel. You know, that's, that's sin, that's brokenness. But, um, what's under attack right now is the givenness of creation. And so like, um, you know, like CS Lewis says in, in abolition of man, we, um, it's impossible to be a Christian if you're not also human. Being Christian means being human well. It means being human as you were intended to be human, really. Um, and that's sort of a theme in Bavink as well, where he's he talks about the restoration of, of creation as it was intended mm -hmm. to be. And that's under attack in so many ways. And we could sit here for hours and talk about the ways in which it's under attack. So I think that's a that's a really, really dominant theme, and it's the one on my mind a great deal lately. We could you know go into others, but that's the one I continually come back to and i'm continually reminded of because doggone it the uh the script about 
being your expressive self and, and, um, being true to what you find within is just everywhere. And it's like very non-physical, very almost supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about it, I was thinking of, like I said, I just got back from Disney world Mm -hmm. and I was thinking of, uh, I won't sing it, but no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. (laughs) Let it go. You know, from Elsa, um, and how, yeah, that's, it completely the complete opposite of the classic Disney films. All the modern ones are absolutely about self-expression and, yeah. um, in the kind that, uh, the kind that you're talking about. Um, sorry. Yeah. There's I got a phone call. I, I had a conversation, um, um yeah. with uh, a writer from plugged in, uh, Paul, Assay on upstream recently, and we talked about Disney movies. So, um, maybe you can go listen to that one because that one, we had a lot of fun with it, but we talked about some of the Disney movies that we like recently and some of the ones we don't, but, uh, I think you're right. You can see that theme becoming more and more dominant in the, especially the, the bad or subversive ones. And there are bad or subversive Disney and Pixar yeah. films. Um, I don't think as many of them are bad as most Christians assume, but, uh, yeah, there's some bad apples. Yeah. 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 And I think this goes along with what you were saying about, um, about how we start to view the world where we take up this expressive individualism value and Disney movies is that you, you had posted this insight on Facebook that I thought was really, really good. And it was how, in a lot of the recent movies, and I think this one was in, uh, in Kanto that you were talking about, mm-hmm. there's uh, a noticeable absence of a villain. Mm. I thought that was a really, really interesting insight that you had shared. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So the, uh, the, the, the villain in particular I'm talking about is the traditional villain, you know, Jafar, Maleficent, Scar, the, the, the truly evil person who uh, sets him or herself up against the protagonist and is not essentially redeemed at the end actually has to be overcome and defeated. So there's this acknowledgement that evil is a real thing. It's in the world and it has to be heroic, heroically resisted. Um, this is a, this is a key element in storytelling throughout time, obviously, but a number of authors have brought it out very well. I think, I think Lewis does something like this in the problem of pain. And, and obviously I always cite C.S. Lewis, but he comes to mind first in, in the problem of pain. He talks about how in a world that's set up the way ours is in which God does not magically undo bad things. He doesn't just snap it out of existence. He could do that, but then that's not the kind of world he chose to create. He chose to create one in which there are actual consequences. So if an evil person chooses to do an evil thing, there are consequences. And that means that in this zero sum existence, there's only so much space. There's only so much time. There's only so much matter. That means evil people will seek to dominate those things. And therefore they must be resisted by force, by good people. Um, we see, we, we've just come to the end of a month of unbelievable violence in this country. And so we're looking back, you know, we're just, you know, yesterday, this horrific shooting in Texas and the display of evil there just boggles the mind. Like what is Mm -hmm. going on in a person's, but how do you, how does a human being get to that point? I can't even read the reports. Yeah. And, um, and you, you realize that that is a kind of evil that must be resisted by force. There is no other way to, to deal with it. That is a true villain right there. And I don't know what the, I don't know the details of the person. Um, but I know that evil has to play a role in that. And so these stories traditionally recognize that a character like that exists in more recent fair, the villain has disappeared. That kind of villain is no longer present. What you see is a lot of, uh, misunderstood characters. So there's someone who is an antagonist, but is perhaps, um, motivated by fear. So like in Encanto, which me and Paul, um, thought was okay. Uh, Paul really liked it. I wasn't crazy about it, but for other reasons that are artistic, more artistic than anything else, the, the antagonist is the, the matriarch is like the mother figure. And in the end there, she's reconciled with the protagonist because, uh, well, she was just afraid. She was, she misunderstood. She was kind of tyrannical and dominating because she was afraid that the family wouldn't survive or would fall apart or they'd lose their magic. And, um, that, that kind of hero, or I'm sorry, that kind of villain repeats itself again and again 
throughout recent movies to where by the end, everyone's essentially good there. No one's vanquished. No one's, you know, actually defeated. There's no evil. that has to fall off a cliff like the, like the evil stepmother in snow white, right? Mm-hmm. She just falls off a cliff at the end <laughs> and then her crows go and eat her like, yikes. It's the same thing with, uh, with, uh, scar and the hyenas go and eat him, you know, yeah. and to the last he's scheming and lying that doesn't appear anymore. So I'm not against sympathetic villains because the world is full of people who need, who are misunderstood and, and, and misguided and ultimately are redeemable that we need to reconcile with and, and redeem. That's fine. I think if we get a steady diet of that though, without any recognition of real evil, you lose your sight for a, an important aspect of the world, the fallen world we live in. And that is real evil, the incomprehensibility of it. The, um, another thing Lewis wrote because darn it, all, all I've got coming to my mind right now is Lewis is, uh, a, a wonderful essay called the humanitarian theory of punishment. And it's essentially a defense of retributive justice in the criminal justice system where he says you, you actually have to give the criminal what they deserve. You can't just try to cure them continually, because if you try to cure them continually, not only have you misunderstood, you, you fail to see real evil, but you're also actually going to be more cruel to the person who you're not punishing the person you're, you're therapeutically trying to cure because, uh, because justice recognizes a limit to retribution. It says, well, there's only so far you can go and then justice has been done. You know, the execution has been carried out, whatever, uh, only therapy and the benevolence of, of, of doctors who are trying to cure a patient can justify perpetual imprisonment, perpetual medication, perpetual study, uh, and therapy and, and whatever else it is that you're trying to do to the person. And that reduces them to something below human. So ultimately hmm. he says retribution is more dignified. It recognizes their humanity and that they are a moral agent that actually deserves justice, not just therapy, not just a cure. So it's a masterful essay, but I think that a little bit of that humanitarian theory of, of justice is, has crept into our entertainment and our popular thinking. So someone would look at this shooter in Texas or the one in, uh, in, um, where was the one before that? I mean, they're all blurring together. The, the one in, uh, help me out. It was like a shop. It was a, it was a grocery store. Yeah. Was yeah. it New York? Somewhere in New no, York no. state. Oh yeah. 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 Buffalo is in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. And you know, there are going to be a, a number of people who look at that behavior and say, well, what was wrong with this person medically? And that's, I think it's a legitimate question to ask, but not to the exclusion of the question of evil. And, and moral categories. And it's also wrong. I, I also think it's probably a legitimate question to ask about the circumstances and even things like guns are one of those circumstances, right? I, I'm a second amendment guy, but I understand the conversation about means and so forth. Those are circumstances, but a, a gun by itself doesn't kill anyone. It never has. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes someone to, to pick it up and pull the trigger. And that's the, the bigger question really is, what's happening there. And if we, if we jettison moral categories that we learn through stories about evil and the darkness of the human heart and depravity and rebellion against God and hatred for life itself, then we're not gonna be able to understand those people. And we're, we're naive, we're sheep and we're set up to be victims. And that is, um, that's where I think our entertainment is kind of pushing us. That that was the, that was the basis of that loss of villain comment. Yeah, well, I think something else that the the loss of villains is a part of is the the primary value of what all the stories are these days, which is that expressive individualism. And if there is any kind of central antagonist, it's usually someone who is preventing the the main character from being their true full self. Or if there's not this easily identifiable central antagonist. It's instead like a, a system or situation or force that has to be overcome that's preventing the mm. 
main protagonist or group from expressing their their true selves. So you know, in in Frozen, it's uh, it's the the parents who had taught this system of hiding your true self that Elsa needs to be freed from and is finally freed from, you know, by, by her sister. And, uh, and in some of these other movies where, uh, and I, and I guess in Kanto might be a little similar where there's like this, this system or, uh, tradition or whatever else that's preventing the main characters from truly expressing their, whatever it, they conceive to be their, their true self. And I think what it teaches, uh, people today is that, that's the central drama of life, mm. expressing your true self and who you want to be and overcoming those forces. And especially, I think it always or, or generally centers on a traditional structure of some kind mm. that needs to be dismantled over, or overcome in order for there to be peace, harmony and flourishing that comes by virtue of you expressing who you truly are. Yeah, this is part of why I think that Jordan Peterson has been such a big deal not only because he highlights and celebrates stories that are about um, being taken up into something bigger. So that classic, you know, the, um, I have Joseph Campbell on the shelf behind me here, the classic hero's journey idea where, you know, what Luke Skywalker discovers that he's a part of something much bigger and older and more important than just his individuality. And that it turns out his, his individuality is pretty stupid and he needs to, <laughs> he needs to get over it and, and become, you know, who he was destined to be, which is determined by a given structure, a matrix that's, that's grand and mythical and mystical. Um, but it's also because, uh, Peterson, and I wrote about this recently points young men in particular to that higher purpose and tells them to find themselves in it and to lose themselves in it. So in yeah. everything about his work, right down to the, the infamous lobster passage in the, at the beginning of 12 rules for life is essentially, uh, uh, an encouragement to young men in particular, again, to conform themselves to a set of rules about how reality works that they didn't choose. They didn't set up and that they, they don't intuit as individuals. So to stand up straight with your shoulders back has an effect on your life in a positive direction, precisely because it's built into the DNA of who you are. And he even, t you know, he takes back to lobsters and he's like, this is yeah. so basic that lobsters work this way. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, and the point of that, of saying that is that, well, we, our, our physical existence is given to us and we don't, determine how that works. And what that means is that you will find meaning outside of yourself. You got to get off your butt and go think about and pursue things that are, uh, bigger and more permanent than you will ever be. And mm. then you will find meaning, but don't sit there navel gazing, trying to look within and find something that, that it is meaningful inside of you. Because the reality is it's, there's probably not anything there. That's really that all that exciting <laughs> and, and, there's probably nothing there that the world really needs right now. You, you're going to become someone that the world needs by looking outside of yourself and conforming yourself to greater, you know, he would say archetypes of meaning or maps of meaning. And I think mm -hmm. Christianity offers something that's very, that's very, very similar. Um, there is a givenness to the world in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he determined the nature of man. He determined that they would be male, we would be male and female. I love how the old translations say it in the image of God. He created them. It's, it's, it's falling up on man. Man is the antecedent of them, male and female. He created them. So man is like this, um, overarching term for the sexes. And I think we do lose something very seriously important when we, uh, downplay that gendered language and go with gender neutral mm. language. It teaches us mm -hmm. that man in man is summarized all of the, the race. Um, but P Peterson's big for that reason. And, um, yeah, we, we desperately need to reassert that as Christians. I, and I think we well-meaning individuals who talk about, you know, how, how, how the church transcends or the gospel transcends these things nationhood or, or family or, you know, the, the church treat the church as a replacement family, for instance. Um, I don't think the church was ever established to replace the family. That's, that's very bad theology. It wasn't, it wasn't established to replace nations either. That's a, that's the wrong way to read Paul when he says that there's neither Jew nor Greek slave, nor free male or female. We're all 
one in Christ Jesus. Well, we, we, yes, I mean, read the reformers on this. We're, they have a bunch of great passages. We're, cre- we're, we're created new and one in Christ Jesus with respect to our common humanity in the Messiah and our restored, uh, our restored image bearing status. But we're not, we're not, um, distinctionless, right? We're in revelation. The vision is that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come together and they don't lose those tribes, those tongues, or those nations. Or as mm-hmm. I, as I talked about with Os Guinness recently on upstream, um, you know, Richard John Newhouse said that when he meets God, he expects to meet him as an American. And I used to bristle at that and think, oh, that's, well, that's, you know, that's nationalistic. And it fails to understand the true impact of the gospel that makes us a post nation humanity all one in Christ Jesus. But th- I think it's a, a desperately damaging category error. And um, hmm. someone who, anyone who wants to have an impact now must call people back to their createdness. And that's in a small part what I think Jordan Peterson is doing. And before I forget, the podcast is number 796, The Life We're Looking For with Andy Crouch. So check that one out because it was very good on this front. Uh, oh, that was the Art of Manliness podcast? Art of Manliness one, yes. Not not mine, right. Oh, okay. I didn't know that Andy Crouch had been on his podcast. Andy Crouch, yeah, it was marvelous. I would say wow. it was kind of okay. above most of this discussions. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, I've got everything we, by the way, if to our audience, everything that we've been mentioning, whether it's the uh, other podcast books I've been taking notes of, and you can find in the show notes. So I'll have all this stuff linked in the show notes for you guys. Uh, we actually are coming close to the end of our time here. I had several other topics and areas for us to go into, but uh, we'll have to save those for another day. Since we're at the end of our time, is there uh, anything you want to leave our audience with before we go? Um, I, I would say we've talked about a bunch of stuff here, so it's difficult to, to draw out a, singu- a singular theme. Yeah. But one of the most enjoyable things in life for me, Aaron, and, and this goes back to the idea of place ultimately boiling down to people, right? And of that embodied presence that we need. And then just the givenness of who we are. Um, the, the podcast that I recommended, The Art of Manliness, the fact that we are human beings who are meant to live mind, body, um, heart, soul, strength, and, and mind. is how Jesus puts it. And Crouch draws on that as categories that are determinative of all our actions, that everything should everything should in some way employ all those parts of us because that's what we are. We're human. We're not floating minds. One of the most valuable things I found is, is friendship in person, embodied conversations over drinks around a fire, over a meal in the living room, whatever the, I would ascribe, you know, 80% of my development as a person to conversations that I've had with other men in person around, you know, this same kind of forum, anything Mm. goes, we can talk about anything. We can explore these topics and just sharpen each other, but just be there with each other. I mean, that has been so crucial for me. And I think that a lot of people are starving for it without really knowing that they're starving for it. And this has a, this has a manifestation among women too. But, uh, Lewis being a man wrote, especially about the male manifestation of this in the four loves. And uh, when he talks about his chapter on friendship, if you haven't read The Four Loves, read The Four Loves. Um, But you can skip right to the chapter on friendship just for a quick intro. And uh, it's it's a, a marvelous treatment of what for him was one of the greatest or perhaps the greatest joy in life was that fellowship with other uh, other believers and just even other thoughtful people who could, um, you know, who could say uh, as he recounted, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. And that's the moment that, you know, friendship is born, uh, the most spiritual Mm -hmm. form of love uh, other than agape, as he said. So, you know, as we're struggling to fight back against this disembodying culture, that pushes us in the direction of becoming self-expressive Gnostic spirits floating out in the ether uh, of the digital world, push back by getting together and just doing something simple and physical and human and having a meal or having drinks or, or smoking a cigar or whatever. I mean, that might not be the best thing for your physical embodiment, but you know what I'm saying? Um, the, those experiences that 
use all of your being and not just the mental faculties are crucial. And you'll find that they have a deeply humanizing influence and a deeply grounding influence. And then um, they bring a tremendous amount of joy into your life that may have been lacking that you don't know how to replace. And the church can be major and central on that front. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. I think there's people who are trying to substitute that with social media engagement, online engagement, uh, gaming, you know, yeah. and they're, they're trying to find that community, all, all these other ways. Um, maybe even through podcasts sometimes, I think there might be people who are trying to substitute that community through podcasts and listening to yeah. great minds. And look, I'm, I'm a big fan of podcasts, obviously being a, being a host of one myself and being an avid listener of many others, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. What shaped me far more than any podcast I've ever listened to, or any of the incredible guests that I've been able to have conversations with is my time with my brothers, you know, Yes, my brothers in Christ. And, uh, and yeah, they've had a, a far greater effect on me. And, and I desire that same kind of community for everyone who listens to this and every other believer I meet as well. So great word to leave us with, man. I really appreciate your time with us here on filter today. Uh, I'll include ways for people to follow you and connect with you online to follow your podcast called Upstream, uh, a podcast of the Colson Center. And uh, so they can stay in touch and keep following you and, and so on. So appreciate the work you're doing, man. And thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Aaron. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.